Amen. If you don't mind, go ahead and open your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30 through 32. Uh, we will um, read this text, then we will jump to our sermon text, which is Luke chapter 3, verse 15 through 20. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 through 32. I like to read Old Testament passages to highlight New Testament passages and to give us an ideal uh, where the biblical writers have Uh, gather their train of thoughts. So this is the purpose of it. So Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 and 32. It says, Therefore, I would judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, Least iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. And make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Now turn to... Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. This is the passage that we will focus on. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. When you're there, just say amen. Amen. It reads as follows. It says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, Rather, he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing Floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the shaft will be burned with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Have you ever had great expectation for the arrival of someone or some kind of event? When people learn the due date of a child's birth, they become excited and their excitement increases once the baby is birthed into this world. Maybe you know someone who served in the military and you are expecting their, their arrival to come home. Uh, they were deployed over, uh, overseas for a number of years and you're waiting for them. And some people have great expectation for a job interview, a birthday party, graduating uh, high school or middle school or even the release of a new movie. People will continue to be excited about these kinds of events, despite how mundane or important those events are. But their excitement will soon dissipate as time progresses, because the event itself will no, long, will, will no longer be remembered. It will be forgotten. There is one event in human history that will always be remembered. 
That is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Since the beginning of time, God has ordained the life, birth, death, and resurrection of Christ to be the most memorable event in human history. You and I both know we celebrate Christ's birth during Christmas, along with million, um, millions of other people as well. In our scripture passage, we have read that the people of Israel were expecting for their arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. They knew from the Old Testament that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, was the appointed Savior of God's people. And they were eagerly anticipating his appearance. They understood the Messiah would one day be among them. That day was dawning. After 400 years of prophetic silence, John the Baptist began his public ministry, and he arrived upon the scene by the Jordan River near Jerusalem. The sole purpose for John's ministry was to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Christ. He did this by preaching a gospel of baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is to say, he proclaimed to all people that they needed to repent of their sins, that they committed against God, and be baptized, which baptism in and of itself is an outward sign of your confession. Repentance and baptism indicates one's need to be cleansed, not physically, but spiritually. Many people travel from their local towns to the wilderness where John was. They were providentially drawn to John so that they could hear uh, his message of baptism, of repentance, and forgiveness of sins. He preached in a manner that was authoritatively convicting. His message was, repent of your sins. If not, you will be judged by God who will send you to hell for all eternity. The gospel that John preached was a gospel of repentance and Judgment. As John preached and baptized people, his ministry grew and he became popular. Because of the call, this caused people to be enthusiastic about John being potentially the Christ. As you can see in your text, they were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Rather, he might be the Christ, as the text states. They understood that John was a prophet. I'm sure they sensed that John was not only a prophet, but a prophet of the Most High. And their excitement heightened because they thought John was the one to deliver them from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. So... Was he the Savior? Was he the Messiah? We know that he was not, but they didn't. Their perception about John, though understandable, was misguided and wrong. If they would have studied the scriptures carefully, they would have known that John was only the forerunner of Christ. His sole purpose was to identify who the Messiah was. In other words, John was the battle trumpet. Jesus was and still is the commander. Here's an interesting fact. As I was going through this text, I thought about a lot of people who expect the Messiah to come. So I thought about how many people actually believe in this 
their, uh, the expectation of the Messiah. So my study led me to this fact. From the 18th century to present-day times, there are at least 40 people who have claimed that they are Jesus Christ. I'm sure there are many more, but for the sake of our sake of time and for the sake of this text, here's an example. A Siberian man named Sergi. He claims to be Jesus Christ. This is present-day time. A Filipino man, his legal name is Apollo. He claims to be Jesus Christ, and his followers refer to him as the appointed son of God. That's very blasphemous. There's an Australian man named Alan John Miller. He too claims to be Jesus Christ. And unlike the others, he is dating Mary Love. And she claims to be Mary Magdalene. You know, this would be laughable if it wasn't true, right? But our Lord has warned us that there will be false Christs. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 23 through 24, and 24, our Lord Jesus said, If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, until the second coming of Christ, people will continue to be deceived by these false individuals who are claiming to be Jesus Christ. These are imposters. But not John. John wouldn't have any of that. He only witnessed about the true Christ, his cousin, Jesus. John wasn't an imposter. Nor he wanted to allow people to perceive that he was the Christ. In fact... John never hinted or claimed that he was the Messiah. When the priests and the Levites came to, uh, from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? John emphatically said, I am not the Christ. Now, here's a point that you can write down that John made it so clear that he is not the Christ. Is because the Christ is mightier than John. Mightier than John. In the beginning of John's ministry, it is most likely that he could not identify who the Messiah was. But he knew that he himself was not the Messiah. Again, his sole purpose was to prepare the people by pointing them to Jesus like any faithful minister of God's word ought to do. And he did just that. How? Ask me how. Well, he quickly dispel the unwanted perceptions that people had held because they thought he was the Messiah. He simply told them that the Messiah was mightier than him. In verse 16, look at it. John said, He, that is Jesus, who is mightier than I, is coming. Jesus was mightier than John in every aspect, in every imaginable way. John was the son of earthly parents. Jesus was and still is the son of God. John was the created, a created person. Jesus was and still is the creator. 
John was from below. Jesus was and still is from heaven. John was a sinful individual. Jesus was and still is sinless. He is the spotless Lamb of God. Jesus. Another thing that how Christ is mightier than John. John baptized people with mere water. Jesus would baptize people in the Holy Spirit and with fire. John not only mentioned that he was a a lesser person than Christ, but also he stated that he is unworthy to be Christ's slave. You might be asking, I don't see the word slave here in our text. You're right. The word slave is not mentioned in the passage, in our passage, but John is hinting towards the meaning of the word by saying, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. One theologian said it is customary for students to be uh, to follow their teachers. They generally did not pay tuition. They did everything that their teachers asked them to do. The teachers didn't have to lift a finger because the students did everything except unloosening the sandals of their teacher. A slave did that. They generally did not pay tuition, but they did show their devotion by performing a lot of menial acts of service. Our Lord said a disciple is not above his teacher. A Jewish rabbi said every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for their teacher except the loosening of the sandals. And if you, if, if one of you notice my shoelaces are untied, what would you instruct me to do? Tie your shoes. Tie my shoes. To tie my shoelaces. If, if, I, if my shoes are untied and I ask one of you to tie my shoelaces, what would be your response? Your natural response towards me will be puzzling. Because you and I both know that any able adult can tie his own shoelace. You know that that is beneath you to tie my shoelaces. You don't mind tying a toddler's shoelaces, but not an adult. And the same thing with John. Jesus, you know, Jesus said this of, of John. Jesus recognized that John as being the greatest man who was ever born. But John did not think of himself in those terms. Again, John said, I am not worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Remember, a slave's job was to untie the sandals of their masters, but John fell even beneath that he was beneath a slave. He was unworthy to do that. He considered himself unworthy or as a slave. This demonstrates John's humility. And his desire to give due exaltation and praise to Jesus. Most preachers will praise themselves. They love receiving praises from men. They love to be on pedestals. They love to be in front of other people, receiving affirmations, thinking they're the one-man show. But not John. John wasn't like that. 
John is an example of how all of us ought to worship, praise, glorify, honor, and proclaim Jesus. And he also demonstrates that we should do in like manner by humbling our hearts to say, we too are unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Also, the words of John sheds light on Jesus' humility. Scripture tells us that Jesus was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. In John chapter 13, verse 8, it's a story about Jesus washing uh, his, his disciples' feet. All right? I, you know, as a footnote, (laughs) pun intended, I think I have wonderful feet. My wife do not feel the same way. And if I even ask her to rub my feet, she would think I am crazy. Let alone wash my feet. But in this in the book of John, Peter, as Jesus was beginning to wash his disciples' feet, Peter said to Jesus, you would never wash my feet. But Jesus insisted. He knelt down, grabbed a towel, and washed his disciples' feet. You compare that to what John said, I am unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Nonetheless, Jesus conducted himself in a similar manner by saying, I am going to humble myself like a slave and wash the feet of others. Although he didn't have to. He didn't have to stoop so low. But he did for the benefit of his disciples and others. Jesus conducted himself as his slave by washing the feet of his disciples, although he himself is their master. We are the ones should wash Jesus' feet. We are the ones should be kissing Jesus' feet. Like the woman with the alabaster ornament. As she was wiping Jesus' feet with her tears and hair. That was just an indication of her adoration towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That was her devotion for the Lord himself. Kissing, wiping Christ's feet. John thought of himself. Uh, We too should think of ourselves in the same manner that John thought of himself, which is we are unworthy people who do not deserve the grace of God, but yet God has given us grace anyway. Another point that Christ is mightier than John. If you compare the, the baptism that John performed and the baptism that Jesus performed, you will see that Christ is mightier. In the last three uh, messages, which includes today's sermon, I've been preaching about John the Baptist, of which he was commissioned to usher in the new covenant of God and prepare people's heart for the arrival of the Messiah. And he did this by pleading with people to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus and trust in the grace of God that can only be found in Jesus. Again, his message was simple. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. However, comparing John's message of baptism of repentance, forgiveness of sins, to Jesus' message of baptism in the Holy Spirit and fire, it is obvious that the latter is greater than the former. John said, I will baptize you with water. 
Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Why would John make a why would John distinguish the baptism he performed from the baptism Jesus performs currently? Have you thought about that? When you read the text, when you heard me reading it, why would John make this distinguish or distinguish the two modes of baptism that he performed and Jesus performed? Because John understood that he could only instruct people to repent of their sins and he could only immerse people in water as a public decoration. That is, the person who were, was baptized had to ask God for, as for forgiveness. But John also knew that his baptism of repentance could not cleanse a person from their sins. Again, his baptism could not cleanse a person from their sins. It had no power to regenerate a person unto life in Christ Jesus. And it could not justify an individual before God. That is the bit distinguishing moment. I mean, the point here that John is making. In practical terms, so in practical terms, countless people have claimed that they have repented of their sins and was baptized, but their lifestyle shows no evidence uh, that they are genuinely saved. I'm sure you and I have heard people say, oh, yes, I was baptized as a teenager. I was baptized as a young adult and whatnot. Or you may have heard someone say, I, I, I do sin, but I repent. I do that. I, I, I repent and ask God for forgiveness. These are commendable acts to repent and to be baptized. And a person uh, should be instructed to do that. But the but these acts cannot save anyone. That is no different from me instructing you to repent of your sins. But my words of itself cannot save you. Hopefully my words are pointing you to the one who can save you from your sins and eternal judgment. You understand. John the Baptist could only immerse people in water. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can cleanse a person of their sins. John the Baptist could only tell people to repent. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can justify them guiltless in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you recall, but there's a story in Acts chapter 19 about John John the Baptist's disciples that Paul met. In Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, Paul uh, met John the Baptist's disciples, and he asked, have they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? They answered and said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And it's quite obvious that these disciples were not full-fledged believers when Paul first met them, since they even not even heard that the Holy Spirit had been given to the church. At the apostle Paul informed them that 
they truly were not saved, although they were remorseful for their own transgressions against God. But they failed to believe in the one who came after John the Baptist. He laid, he prayed for them, pointed them to Jesus, and that is when God the Holy Spirit fell upon them. They repented and believed in Jesus Christ. John preached to people to repent of their sins and be baptized, which was all for the preparing of the hearts for the one to come, Jesus. But again, only Jesus can change them inwardly in the power of the Holy Spirit and prepare them to the Father. If you use me, for example, I instruct you to follow Christ, and hopefully you will. And then Christ himself gives you to the Father. I can only prepare or at least assist your hearts, but I cannot change you. Only Christ can do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. I instinctively think about Old Testament passage that says, can an Ethiopian change his skin? Or can a leopard change his spots? The answer to the question is no. An Ethiopian cannot change his skin, and a leopard cannot change his spots, but I know who can. So what does it mean to, uh, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, before I tell you that answer, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean an individual must show some kind of evidence of speaking in tongues. As a, when I was a, as a young boy, I remember attending a charismatic church under the leadership of Craftful Dollar at World Changers in Georgia. And when I was there, he asked people to have they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of speaking in tongues. And he would then invite people to stand in front of the pulpit. The people who, the people walked down, including myself, followed the ushers into a separate room. In that room, uh, they would ask people to start speaking in tongues. Blah, 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 right? The notion is that if a person can demonstrate that they can speak in a different tongue, then they are filled with the Holy Spirit. That notion is incorrect and misleading. Retrospectively speaking, if I think about it now, I'm saying to myself, that was a truly bizarre experience. Any adult can babble like a baby. However, babbling is no evidence that a person is spirit-filled, that the person has been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I know that many of your trans, uh, Bible translations, uh, if you take a notice and read, it says that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you're reading from the NIV, uh, the ESV, I think the NJKV, New King James Version, uh, they use the word with the Holy Spirit. But it should read, he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. The Greek word for with in our translation actually means in, or that is into. This is why we, as a group of believers, submerse people into 
water when they are baptized. This is important to know because if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, it means that you are born again. That is regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit to liberate you from the bondage of sin. It means that you are justified and now sealed by the Holy Spirit if you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. It means that you have been set apart to walk walk in holiness. That is, if you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, it means that you are in Christ Jesus and God's Spirit dwells in you. Scripture says, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 11, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. An author, one author defined baptism and the spirit as follows. Spirit baptism means here describes as identical to regeneration. Regeneration means that you are brought to life or God has quickened your dead souls. But he says regeneration with the sovereign act of God whereby we are made one with Christ, incorporated into the body of Christ. That is a beautiful imagery there. You don't need to seek a spirit baptism as to post-conversion. If you are in Christ, you already been spirit baptized. In other words, if you say, well, uh, using the example I just used earlier, I need to show some type of evidence that you have been uh, filled with the spirit. There's no need to have a second experience of that. You know that you are spirit-filled according to Galatians chapter 5. The fruits of the Spirit. If you have been born again, or, or you do not know... Okay, so let me slow down. Pause. I'm back. I'm getting too excited. If you have not been born again, or you don't even understand what I'm saying to you, or don't understand the meaning of being born again, I beg you, I plead with you to see me at the service. Because it is likely that you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and therefore... If this is true of you, you are not in Christ and you are still dead in your sins.
Listen to me. This is very important. If this is you, if this describes who you are, and you don't understand what I am saying to you at all, your eternity is at stake. Do not walk out of these doors without first placing your trust and faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and only in him can you be saved from the eternal damnation that God has set forth for those who rebel against him. Look at verse 17. The Christ will judge all people with unquenchable fire. According to verse 17, John said his winnowy fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. John is speaking in forming terms. In John's time, farmers would take a pitchfork to handle the wheat, and they would throw the wheat into the air, and the wheat, will, the wheat since it's heavier, will fall to the ground, but the shaft will be carried away with the wind because of its lightness. And later, farmers will burn the shaft. The main point of verse 17 is that John is making a distinction between people who are truly safe and people who are not safe or, or not saved in Christ. In other words, Jesus is the farmer. The wheat are the people who have repented and placed their trust in Christ. The chaff are those who are unrepentant and rebel against the laws of God. And these people will die in their sins. And Jesus will not be their savior, but their judge. And he will send them to hell. We know John is speaking about a particular judgment because he used the word fire three times. And just scan over, uh, scan over these verses. The word fire is used in verse nine. The word fire is used in verse sixteen. The word fire is used in verse 17. Whenever fire is mentioned in the Bible, it refers to either purification or judgment. Christians will be judged by Christ, every word indeed, but they would not be judged on the base. Uh, basis of their faith because they already placed their faith in Christ, they will be judged on the basis of their works. Wood, stone, wood, straw, etc. As 1 Corinthians says. Unsafe, unregenerate people will be judged based on their faith in Christ. If they have placed their faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you're not in Christ, again, you, and you are at risk of dying in your sins today. And you will be judged. God will send you to a conscious torment. Because God knows who belongs to him or who belongs to Satan. Think about it for a second. In our cultural context, let me rephrase that, in our church 
in church cultural contexts. There are a lot of people who belong to a church, who have their membership at a church. They do the Christian things. They sing the songs. But they're only deceiving themselves if they are, are if they really know that God knows that they're not in Christ. They are the shaft and the genuine believers who do the churchy things are are the wheat. You have heard me use this phraseology many a times. These these things. There are two people in this world. Only two. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who belong to Adam and those who belong to Christ. Those who are wheat and those who are chaff. Those who are unregenerate and those who are were regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who will die in their sins and those who will and be eternally judged by the Creator and those who will be liberated from their sins. Those who belong to the church and are the people of God and those who are in the church but belong to Satan. Similar to the parable of the the uh, weeds that Jesus said, a cruel person planted weeds among the wheat, and the person asked, "Should we tear out the weeds?" In the parable, Jesus said, "No, because you may just tear out the wheat as well." He said, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles. And gather so they can be burned. Listen, you can be religious. You can pretend to be saved. You can come to church. You can talk. You can look. Like a Christian, but God knows if you are truly a child of his. God knows if you are wheat or chaff, holy or unholy, or a sheep or a goat. And the point that John is making here, that there will be a day when God the Son was separate the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. And that day will come before we know it. Last point, and we'll come to a close. If you look at verses 18 through 20, it says, uh, we have uh, already read it, but we have learned that a faithful servant of Christ will incur persecution if they are faithful to the gospel God has given them. We learn from verses 18 through 20 that Herod imprisoned John because he preached good news to the people and to Herod. But Herod did not consider John's message to be good news because Herod was having an incestuous, an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. People say, well, the Bible isn't interesting. I would say, I bet the question, have you read it? Because the Bible within itself is like a soap opera. Herod was caught cheating with his brother's wife. Sounds like some Jerry Springer episode. (laughs) 
Um, it was, it's, what John said to Herod can, it can be found in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21. I'm sure John said these words. I would have said these words. I, I, I vaguely remember my brother was flirting with another guy's wife, and I said to my brother, man, what are you doing? Leave her alone. John would have said, according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21, which says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. That is still, it is and still is uh, morally wrong to have emotional or sexual relationship with someone else's spouse or a person who is not a spouse at all, but you're flirting with them. You know, I, I shared this story before, but I'm not going to mention this individual's name. Um, he's a eloquent uh, preacher who proclaimed God's words. His sermons are still online, but yet he was having adultery. They remove him from the pulpit. Because John admonished Herod to do what is right, he locked John up in prison. And we all know what happened to John during his imprisonment. Herod chopped John's head off. Because his wife, Herodias, didn't like the fact that John was preaching truth to them. Here's an interesting thing that I learned about John. John was only in the ministry for three years until Jesus started his public ministry. From from, I think, uh, yeah, from A.D. 27 to A.D. 30, John was preaching truth. Three years of ministry. But what's so interesting about this is that God foreseen John's death. God knew that how John was going to die. But this should illustrate to us that it wasn't, it was never about John in the first place. It was about Christ. It still is. John's ministry should illustrate that trusting in the righteousness of Christ and walking in holiness will come at a cost. If you are walking in godliness, you will suffer persecution. If you go up to any individual, I don't care if they're a politician, I don't care if it's President Trump, I don't care if it's a local official, and you start preaching the gospel to them, telling them that they need to submit and surrender to uh, God himself, they will get offended. Because the gospel itself is offensive. Paul said it on similar lines. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people will go on from bad to worse. Although John knew that was the truth, his words as well as uh, his words shall be ours as well as when he said he 
must increase, but I must decrease. Despite what happens to us, it's not about you. It's about Christ. Despite what you're facing, it's not about you, it's about Christ. Apply this to your life, please. Today is the day of salvation. God's kingdom is at hand. Christ has already arrived. He already died on the cross for unworthy sinners like us. And he rose again from the grave on the third on the third day. Now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. So the kingdom of God is at hand. And I beg of you that if you have not been born again, if you are not in Christ, Repent today of your sins that you have committed against God himself and place your trust in the righteousness of Christ alone so that by grace you may be saved. I will love, I, I even ponder of the day when I see people that I know of that I can preach to them and they come and not my preaching of itself will do the work but God the Holy Spirit will and they come to a saving knowledge in Christ and I will love the day that I will baptize them because that is when they will truly be my brother or sister. I dream of those days because I know a lot of people who are shafts. I know a lot of people who are goats. I know a lot of people who are still in Adam. I know a lot of people who potentially would die in their sins, but I praise God because I know and I'm trusting and I'm praying that they will be saved from their sins and place their trust in Christ. That is my sole desire. And I hope that you too would do that today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would impress upon the hearts of all of us, those who are in you and those who are not in you. For those who are in you, I pray that you will purge us from the wickedness of ourselves. And for those who are not in you, I pray by your grace you will open up their minds and their hearts to see their own wickedness, to see their own moral failures. Enable them to repent of their sins. Help them to be liberated from their sins, Lord, that they can place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would not allow them to walk out of these doors without coming to a reckoning in their own hearts. I pray that they will see Christ as their Savior and not die in their sins to see him as their judge. 
as the ushers are coming up, I pray that you will bless the offering that it will be given. I pray that you will use it for to further the gospel of this uh, of your word. That this church we use it to 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 as at all costs as a means to reach someone else for your kingdom. Bless what will be given and bless those who give. I pray this in your name and in your son's name. Jesus Christ, amen.